The scripture reading is 1 Corinthians 13. And I um, just wanted to say that uh, when, when Carl and I planned this series, um, we, you know, we planned a 12-sermon series on 1 Corinthians 13, on the shortest chapter in the whole book of 1 Corinthians. Um, and I was, uh, I was a little bit worried that I would get sick of it or that, that you would get sick of it. Um, but that hasn't been the case, uh, for me at least. I hope it's not the case for you. Um, and I'm actually kind of sad because this is going to be our last sermon on 1 Corinthians 13 until May just because of scheduling things. Um, we have next, uh, next Sunday we have, um, we have community care groups and then the following Sunday is Easter Sunday so we don't have an evening service and then is community care groups and then I'll be preaching um, the text that has been assigned to me by classes here on for my ordination and then we have community care groups again and then it's May. <laughs> Time flies. So um, we're going to be picking this back up again in May um, but until then, um, this is, yeah, this is going to be the, the last uh, sermon in this series for, for a little while. So, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we approach his word. O Lord, our God and our King, we thank you for the gift of 1 Corinthians 13. We thank you for its beauty. We thank you for its poetry. We thank you for the challenge that it poses to us in how we live our lives as people who are following after you, as people who are filled with your Holy Spirit, and as people who strive to imitate your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that as we read and meditate on your word tonight, that you would send your Holy Spirit to us to fill us with the knowledge and understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we pray that we would be transformed more and more into the likeness of your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect 
disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord for us this evening. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, this evening we continue in our seventh sermon in the series on 1 Corinthians 13 on love, agape love, the love of God. And so far we've been looking at these characteristics of love that are described by Paul here in this beautiful chapter, and we've been relating it to the situation of the church in Corinth in the first century, and we've been relating it to our own lives today. And I think it's becoming clear, at least I hope it's becoming clear, that this passage is more than just a pretty poem that we read at weddings. Love is tough. Patience, kindness, dignity, self-sacrifice, self-control. These are things that take a lot of discipline and a lot of character. And so Paul's poem, Paul's love poem, is a challenge to all Christians in all times and all places to live as a people called by God, to live as a people filled with the Holy Spirit, to live as a people who walk in step with Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's, it's an awesome challenge. And as we've seen over these past weeks and months, it's an intimidating challenge, to be sure. But it's also a necessary challenge if we're going to put any stock in what Scripture teaches us. And that was the first sermon in this series, the first sermon that we looked at, that this love, this, this agape love, this love of God is necessary. And the reason that this love is necessary for us is because we can't face the challenge that Paul gives us in this chapter on our own. We can't do these things out of our own human love. We need God's agape love to be able to even begin to dream of, do, of accomplishing these things. It would be impossible for us to do what Paul calls us to do in this chapter if we relied on our own human love, our own erotic love, this love born out of desire, born out of need, because this human love has no stomach for patience because it's driven by desire. It it can't be self-sacrificing because it's born out of selfish need. It can't exercise self-control because it's always looking to satisfy its own pleasure. And so we need the love of God in order to accomplish the kind of behavior that Paul is calling us to here, this self-giving, other-focused, unconditional, eternal love. (coughs) And there is perhaps nowhere in the Christian life where this is more true than in the topic that we're talking about this evening. Love keeps no record of wrongs. 
Forgive and forget. That's how the saying goes. Forgive and forget. Forgiveness is so central to our faith. And yet it continues to be one of the most difficult things that God calls us to do. Forgetting someone else's sin is one of the most difficult things that we are called to do as Christians. And forgetting, I mean forgiving maybe, but forgetting, that's oftentimes pretty close to impossible. Even if we can find it within ourselves to forgive someone for the wrong that they've committed against us, it's very easy for us to hold on to that and to hold that over the person who has wronged us. Remember that time that I forgave you for doing this, for doing that? I'm a better person than you, clearly. The image that Paul is going for here in 1 Corinthians 13 in this, in this sentence, love keeps no record of wrongs, the image that Paul's going for here, and it comes across very clearly in the Greek, is a ledger. And I, I love the way that the NIV translates it because it's, it's just spot on. Love keeps no record of wrongs, like the way we keep traffic records or criminal records or incident reports or tithing records. Love doesn't keep books on evil. Love keeps no ledger. Love keeps no accounts. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't keep score. What Paul is saying here is that love doesn't keep track of debts that need to be paid. Love doesn't credit someone's wrongs against their account. And this is significant because debt was a big deal in the ancient world. Keeping tabs on what was owed someone was an important part of Greek society and, and all around the Mediterranean. And it's, it's an interesting thing because when you, study, um, when you study the ancient languages, Greek and Hebrew, um, one of the things that, that becomes very clear is that archaeologists have to wade through hundreds and hundreds of receipts and IOUs and pages out of ledgers for every one fragment of scripture that they find or every personal letter that they find. There's just hundreds of thousands of these documents, of, of receipts and IOUs. This is how important keeping track of debts was in the ancient world, that this is by far the most common type of document that survived to today. And it's not, it's not just financial debt either, it's, it's social debt as well. I think that sometimes we forget that the Bible was written in an honor-shame society. And there's a great article in Christianity Today from this past month that... that um, that highlighted this, that, that the Bible was written in an honor-shame society. It, it was a society where, peop, where what people thought about you was vital to your success. That, and so saving face and, and keeping your honor was an important part of daily living. And so if someone publicly insulted you, you had to regain your honor or you would risk losing your, the respect of the whole community. If you didn't demand restitution for the wrongs that were committed against you, you lost status in society. 
And we see this cultural phenomenon reflected in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Remember that the Corinthians were a pretty new church, they're, and they're in a really influential city that has a very rich cultural history. It's a rep, it has a reputation as a city of learning and philosophy, of economy and trade and wealth. And the Corinthian church, the, the body of believers, is quite a mixture of people from different levels of society. They have the upper crust of the wealthy elites, and they have the day laborers, and they have slaves, all worshiping together in the same congregation. And so in a lot of ways in Corinth, the church is really a very new social experiment, something that Corinth had never really seen before. It's this, it's this big-time clash of cultures. And people are doing, people are still living out their old culture, living out the culture from before that they were Christians. And we saw that a couple of weeks ago from 1 Corinthians 10, where people are going to, to idol feasts in the temple um, so, so that they can make business connections and get, uh, get connected socially. And we see that in the beginning of the letter in the way that Paul talks about these different divisions in the church because the Corinthians are adopting the educational model that was common in their society where you follow a particular teacher and then you have public debates about whose teacher is better. And so you see at the beginning of the Corinthian letter, you know, the different factions of the church are saying, oh, well, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. They're, they're holding on to, to their old culture. And one of the places where we really see this honor-shame aspect of their culture coming out is, uh, is in chapter 6, where Paul reprimands the Corinthian Christians for suing each other in the public courts, for taking each other to court. This was one of the most common ways in the ancient world that people would get revenge on someone for dishonoring their family name for making you lose face in Greek society. You basically took this person to court and you stood up before the whole town or whoever was there and you said, this person has shamed me and my family and this was a very public thing and so it was humiliating for the person that, that was brought to court and was accused. And the worst thing is that from what we can see from the records, most of these lawsuits were wealthy people suing poor people. And so a wealthy person would drag a poor person or even a slave to court and, and would accuse them of dishonoring their family and then the judge would demand that this poor person repay, would, would, that this poor person pay to, to pay for the shame that they had brought on this family. It was, it was really an awful system and had no accountability because, of course, poor people can't bribe judges, right? And so to counter this terrible, humiliating system of revenge, Paul tells the Corinthians, love keeps no record of wrongs. Whether we acknowledge it or not, our society still deals a lot in the currency of honor and shame. Except for us, it's more individualistic. In Corinth, people would have brought people to the public courts and said, this person has dishonored my family or has shamed my family name. They've brought dishonor on, on my community. And for us, it's more individual. For, for us, it's that someone has dishonored me. Someone has wronged me. 
And we, of course, don't have public courts that we can bring people to, to to accuse them of dishonoring us. And so we have these imaginary courts in our mind where we judge that people are guilty and we hold grudges. We hold grudges sometimes for years, sometimes even for decades at a time. Pastor Carl last Sunday told a powerful story about Edder, the Colombian boy who, um, who, when asked about the problem of violence in Colombia, said that the problem is that people hold grudges from their childhood. And then when they're old and can afford guns and can beat people up, those grudges are repaid. And this is the problem with anger. The problem with anger is that it, get, it makes scratches. It, it gets etched into the fragile, the fragile membranes of our memory, and it just festers there like an infection. Someone does something that scratches our ego, and it just sits there and itches and burns and grows deeper and deeper into who we are, and we scratch it. We hold grudges. We plot revenge, and this makes the wound redder and deeper and bigger. And this really is a deadly pleasure because we love it and we hate it. We love it and we hate it. We love holding grudges because it it allows us to justify feelings that we know we're not supposed to have. It allows us to justify feelings of hatred and jealousy and anger and fear. It gives us a way to justify our fantasies of revenge and payback. And so we keep scratching this wound. We We keep track of the score. We keep tabs on what people do wrong And it gives us this self-righteous feeling of justice. Like, I know that I'm better than that person because they did this and this and this and this and this and this. And so we scratch that wound and we love it, but we also hate it because it makes us miserable. Nobody wants to be wounded. But everybody understands if a wounded person holds a grudge, And so we scratch, and the wound grows, and sometimes it grows so deep that we can't even remember a specific instance of how the person has wronged us. We just know that they have. And so we throw out comments like, you always humiliate me in front of our friends. You never have the house clean when I come home. You always lie. You can't do anything nice. Always, never, nothing, everything. This is the vocabulary of deep grudges. This is the vocabulary of revenge. This is the vocabulary of our erotic love, our selfish human love. This human love demands that we keep score. It demands that we keep track of debts to be paid because when our self-image relies on how we see ourselves through our own eyes. We become very fragile and very easily harmed. When we are the center of our universe, then anything that threatens us shakes the fabric of reality. When we are the center of the universe, anything that threatens us shakes the very foundation of our universe. The problem with this way of thinking, of course, is that we are not the center of the universe. 
A threat against us is not a threat against the universe. But when we see ourselves as the most important thing, then we stop seeing other people as people who are created in the image of God. When we, when we nurse these grudges, when we nurse these feelings of jealousy and hatred and anger and revenge, we stop seeing other people as people. And all that we can see is the evil that they've done against us. All that we can see is the record of wrongs that we've charged to their account. All that we can see is their ledger, their dripping red ledger. All that we can see is a debt that must be paid. Imagine what life would be like if God looked at us that way. Imagine what life would be like if we spent every moment worried about whether or not we had paid off our debt to God. Imagine what we would have to go through if God's ego was as fragile as ours. The words of the psalm that we read as our call to worship, Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his words I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. And this, of course, is what we celebrate during this season, that God himself has redeemed us from all our sins. We serve a God who is not willing to nurse a grudge. We serve a God who is bigger than petty revenge. We serve a God who loves us so much that he takes the punishment for our sins on himself. He charges the payment for our debt against his own account. And even as he's being nailed to the cross, our Lord Jesus Christ cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this is the love that we need to rely on if we're going to get into the business of forgiveness. We can't rely on our own love. We can't rely on our human love to forgive. We have to rely on the love of God because it's only when we rely on God's love that we can forgive. God's love helps us to see that we are not the center of the universe. God's love helps us to see that all people 
are created in the image of God and are worth saving, God's love helps us to see that Jesus Christ has already paid the debt for all sins. And so we can forgive. We can give people a new start because their debt has already been paid. Just like our debt has been paid because God has forgiven us in Christ. When we allow God's love to fill us, to guide us, we are able to let the past die. We're able to look at people with a clean slate every single day of their lives, forgetting their debts, because all debts are paid in Christ. We can't demand that people who have wronged us pay that debt anymore, because the debt has already been paid by Christ just like our debt has been paid. And this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that in him all of our sins are forgiven. All of our debts have been wiped clean. God has taken our ledger, our red ledger, and he has washed it in his blood. The debt has been paid through the unconditional love and amazing grace of our great God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. O Lord our God, we thank you that you keep no record of wrongs. We thank you that you have forgiven us through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, that you have taken the debt that we owe and you have paid it yourself. Lord, we thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit because if you didn't, we would never be able to live the way that you've called us to. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In the name of Jesus we pray.